discussing adoption, okay? And I have created a PowerPoint slideshow. The text is a little small at times. I apologize for that, difference in systems. Uh, But we've got a lot of ground to cover. I want to get what Paul is getting at here, and I want to help serve you uh, by giving you a visual. And so I've provided that for you. Hope you can kind of keep up and keep track. But the goal is this. Christ has come. He died on the cross for our sins by the commission of God, on the rescue mission of God to redeem us and to adopt us into his family. And if we leave here today and we think, and, and that's what we know, success. Because that alone invokes worship in the heart of a believer. And I hope that will be uh, you today. But we're also going to consider the gospel implications of adoption. But we're going to consider also the mission of the church in adoption. So before we jump in, let me pray. God, I thank you for this church. I thank you for these people. God, I thank you for, uh, in your sovereignty, having every single person here who's here. Having me here to teach and lead. And God, I pray that uh, you would be honored in... Um, through your text today, and that I will communicate it clearly. Please edit my sermon. In Jesus' name, amen. Yami Dong. Okay. I want to tell you the story of a little girl named Yami Dong. Okay. She was born in 2003. Okay. Born in 2003 to a Chinese mother um, in Hong Kong City, China. The mother... For no reasons that we fully comprehensively know, had to give up her child. So Yami Dong was born March 9th, 2003. And on April of 2003, one month after she was born, she was placed in a box near a food market on the street in an area where hopefully she would be seen. Okay? The mother, I mean, and you can imagine, distraught, difficult. Every orphan, their life is marked by tragedy of some sort. We don't need to hide that. Okay? There, there's a tragedy here. That's, it's sad. We don't know all the reasons. Could it be the one-child regulation that China had at the time? Possibly. Could it be any number of different family pressures? Could it be financial issues? Could it be anything? We don't know. But we do know that this helpless, vulnerable little girl named Yami Dong was placed in a box open, vulnerable to the elements as a one-month-old child, fragile, frail, helpless, cannot provide for herself. We know her birth date because her mom pinned her birth date on her little suit she was wearing. And so she, we know that the mom hoped that one of the orphanage workers, there was an orphanage nearby, would come and pick up vegetables at the vegetable market for the orphanage and see this little girl and take her in. And that's exactly what happened. An orphanage worker came, gathering the food for the day, came, saw this little girl, one month old, hopeless, helpless, picked her up and took her back to the orphanage. That was 2003. 2001, a family in Georgia, they're filling out paperwork, they're getting blood tests, they're doing home studies, they're doing all of these things behind the scenes in order to prepare to receive a child, to adopt a child into their home, okay? This is 2001. Through years of paperwork, and many, a few, couple of you are in that process now, it's daunting. It's a process, and it's lengthy. They're in this process for one year, two years. They get a call from the agency that a little, they found a little girl, 
in a box. She's been with the orphanage for um, almost nine months whenever she was picked up. Ten months. She was ten months old, so nine months when she was picked up. But they had, they had matched this family who had been going through this process with this girl, Yami Dong. And they put little pictures of this little girl all throughout their house. Um, anticipation grew. Okay? The, there would be a day when this little girl would be a part of this family. And it was, she was prayed for. She was anticipated. It was fun. It, there was good energy. And in 2004 of, eight, of, of February, 10 months old, this girl was 10 months old, she was received into that family. That was my little sister, Canaan. Okay? Yeah. I got the crying gene from my dad. So, um, but that was my little sister. This is my little sister. She was helpless, homeless, lonely, vulnerable. And through the faithfulness of my parents, and I'm not up here to toot their horn or anything, but I love them, and they've been great examples for me. Through the faithfulness of my parents to pursue adoption, this little vulnerable, helpless girl was cared for and received with great anticipation and love into a family. She became a Rogers and now her name is Canaan. They named her Canaan, and uh, it sounds a lot like Canon, I know, but uh, that's my son. But it, she's happy. She's in our home. Our text today is going to point us to, the re- to this adoptive reality that believers go through as they come into the family fold of God. If you're a believer here, that process of anticipation... That vulnerability that this little girl had on the Chinese street is the same thing that you had going on spiritually. You were vulnerable. You were weak. You were exposed. You were helpless. You had no opportunity, no resources that you could bring to the table to help yourself get out of your hopeless and dark, lost situation. And God sent his son to die on the cross for you to rescue you. Out of that. Adoption is such a beautiful picture of the gospel whenever we see it at the human level. But it's beautiful because it's what God has done for us in Christ. And so our passage today is going to be Galatians 3 verses 26 through 4, 7. And so if you can go ahead and turn in your Bible there, we will jump straight in. Verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And we're going to tap the brakes right there. The difficulty with picking a text... Uh, and, and preaching a text is that you, you really have to get the context that surrounds it. So I'm going to run that through you real quick. I'm a context guy. This probably drives my wife crazy sometimes. It definitely drove my mom crazy. I want to know why. How do we get from point A to point B? And I think we need to take that journey together this morning. So just a quick synopsis of Galatians. And I think I've got this uh, up there. Brief overview. You probably cannot read that. Maybe you can if you've got good eyes here on the front row with these kids right here. See, there's benefits to sitting on the front row. Right up here, you see? Um, Brief overview. Galatians 1 and 2. The people add works of the law to the gospel of grace. Okay? 
Examples. Galatians 1.6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. In Galatians 1.11 through 24, Paul gives his own testimony of being saved out of legalistic Judaism. In Galatians 2.11 through 14, Paul summarizes his debate with Peter in the Jerusalem council over whether or not circumcision should be required of Gentile converts. They were struggling with this. In Galatians 2.16, says this, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus, in order to be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. What had happened is the Galatians had added to the gospel of grace. They added legalistic requirements. They were trying to impose the laws given to the Jews regarding circumcision and meals and festivals and holidays and making Gentiles essentially practice these things in order to be in good fellowship. And this was wrong. That's Galatians 1 through 2. Galatians 3, Paul is going to explain that Christ is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. A couple of example verses uh, here. Galatians 3, 7 through 9. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Galatians 3, 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And then verse 16 of chapter 3. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and your offspring, who is Christ. This is the journey that has led us up to this text that we're at today. And a couple of four conclusions from the context here. Human observance of the law is insufficient for salvation. You need to know that today. Okay? You need to know that today. You cannot be good enough. You cannot keep the law enough in order to earn salvation. You cannot. Galatians need to be reminded of that. We need to be reminded of that. Secondly, human observance of the law cannot contribute to our justification. We are justified through the works of Christ, through his faithfulness alone. Three, faith in Christ Jesus and union with Christ is the only thing that justifies a person before God. And four, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for you and me. And that leads us to the glorious realities that we find in adoption. And this is true for the Galatians and it's certainly true for us. In our summary statement for today, in Christ we are children of God through Adoption, And so as we have that context in our pocket and we're able to dive fully into this text, I want us as a church to be enthralled with the theology of adoption. Okay? This is no small thing. This is great. It's magnificent, the thing that God has done for us in Christ when we were hopeless and helpless. But then I also want us as a church, I want you, no matter how old you are, no matter how many children you have, no matter how many children you don't have, 
I want you to consider your role in adoption. Because we have, and orphan care is a better term for that, orphan care. Uh, I want you to consider your role in the church's mission of orphan care. So back to verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Notice what this text does not say. It does not say you will not, or that you will be sons of God. What does it say? I heard somebody say, you are, right? You are. That's important for us. I don't know how many of you struggle with this, but I certainly have struggled with this at times. You just don't feel valuable sometimes in life. Maybe things aren't going your way. Maybe you don't feel appreciated um, by your spouse, by your employer. Maybe you're not seeing the success in your job that you thought you should. And you, don't, you just don't feel valuable. This changes your mindset when you are a son of God through Christ. You are a son of God. This language, son of God, is strategic as well. Notice, it does say sons. This is referring to the males. Okay? This is, this is a son is a male. That is strategic. Some of the translations that you may have will interpret this as children of God. Okay, I know the New Living, the NIV. I know um, a couple others that have translated this verse to say, you are children of God in Christ and through faith. But that really misses out on what Paul is getting at. You see, when you become a child of God, you are granted the privileges of a son. And keep in mind, Paul is writing in a patriarchal society where who receives the inheritance? The sons. Okay? And so this is strategic. This is important. In Christ, whatever gender you are in here, you are a son. Meaning, you receive the inheritance in Christ through faith. You receive the inheritance of God as a son. Now, that will only mean as much to you as you view God. Okay? If your view of God is big, that will mean a lot to you. If your view of God is small, it's just another theological reality that you can put in your pocket and be unmoved by. But when you consider that the creator of the universe, the guy, the one, not the guy, but the one who set the stars in their courses, the planets in their courses, who gives you life and breath, who creates human beings in his image with all of the intricacies that we are, including heartbeat and how our bodies function and our eyes, our brains. There is a creator behind this that is magnificent. He is glorious. He's big. He's smart. And the scripture tells us that he owns cattle on a thousand hills. He owns it all. This is his world. When you come to this text and that is your view of God, the creator of the universe, this means something, that you are a son of God. You are one who will receive the inheritance. And I take you back to the Garden, to the garden of Eden. Um, we're Adam and Eve. We're doing a, uh, where we f- first meet Adam and Eve, we're doing a Bible study on Wednesday nights with uh, the youth. Um, biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. Manhood with the guys, womanhood with the girls. Um, and we're studying this text. And we're seeing in this text. And we read Genesis 1 every Wednesday night whenever we meet. Okay? Uh, we see in this text, Genesis 1, that God, the creator of all of this good th- these good things, magnificent and powerful, genius 
intelligent, this God has given Adam and Eve dominion over the earth. Not only that, he has given them communion and fellowship with him in the garden. And I want you to know that that is a key component. Maybe the biggest element of our sonship is not that you will receive certain things. It's that you have fellowship with God. Just like Adam and Eve did pre-fall. Just like Christ comes and he procures that for us. He makes a way for us to have fellowship and communion with God again. That being the greatest and most supreme thing. In fact, that will be, he will be the prince of heaven. That will be your focus in eternity. And so if you are not enthralled with who God is now. And don't enjoy communion and fellowship with him now. Why would you even want to be? In a place where he is the end all be all. This is God. And this is what we have received through our sonship. Which comes to us how? Through faith. Now you'll hear Paul all throughout the the book of Galatians. And I actually think Brian Payne is going to preach through Galatians next. uh, In his next book that he goes through. Uh, But you'll see this faith emphasis. This faith emphasis. It's because they struggled with legalism. And I think there are two ways, actually, that we can struggle with legalism. Okay? For us as believers, uh, we can struggle with legalism as we see our relationship with God through our own faithfulness to him. That's, a, that's legalism. God loves you. Even though you're a failure at times, even though you sin against him, God loves you. And then there may be some of us in here who feel as if they have to get all of their things in life together before they can come to God. That too is legalism. And you need to hear that you can be a son of God, a child of God, through Christ and in, or through faith. Okay. So how do we bring this into understand it applicationally? Well, as I was preparing for this sermon, I was... Most of my analogies and illustrations will go back to my family. My family now is comprised of um, seven Chinese children and two Caucasians. And so the two Caucasians of us are outnumbered greatly, um, and we love it, okay? So I've got one biological sister and seven adopted siblings, and so my mind is going to go there. But for us to feel like we have to work for our salvation would be similar to one of these adopted children that we have in our family Feeling the weight and the pressure of having to earn their stay in the, in the family. That, which isn't any grounds for which they were adopted anyways. They were adopted out of love, out of care, out of grace. You so too have been saved out of love, out of care, and out, out of compassion, and out of grace. Rest in that. You are saved by faith. Verse 27. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. This, for as many of you as, is referring to everyone. Okay? Galatians were pushing and trying to, again, keep Jewish law in with salvation for the Gentiles. Not supposed to happen. God wants, and through Paul's hand here, wants them to know that salvation is for everyone. And as many, not just for the Jews. But Paul also wants the Galatians to know that their sonship is grounded in being baptized into Christ. Now, this is not referring to baptismal regeneration here. 
Rather, it is referring to baptism as being the culminating event in a person placing his faith or her faith in Christ. And so, in a sense, Paul is using shorthand here. Okay? He's using shorthand. He's using this term baptism to refer to the process of being regenerated, of having faith, of being justified and then adopted. All being signaled through the baptism that you go to as a public profession of those things. He's using shorthand here. So as many of you who will come and are baptized into Christ are sons and daughters. But, you, but he also says here that we have put on Christ. Now this put on Christ um, language is important for Paul. Okay? It is. In Romans 13, 14, Paul says this. But put on the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Put on the Lord. Ephesians 4, 24, he says this. And put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Colossians 3, 9 through 10. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. This put on language, it's important. And I think there's a few um, applications that we actually, implications from this that we need to take away. Uh, But again, the best way I can describe it is this. Whenever we have adopted these children from China, whenever they come and they become part of the Rogers family, they no longer wear Chinese garb. They no longer speak Chinese. They speak English or a southern version of English. And they don't have Chinese twang. They've got southern twang. They do. It's the cutest thing. If you were to come in to my household back in Georgia and see these children, before they speak, you would think, oh, I probably got an accent, Chinese accent maybe. No. It is southern accent. I mean, it is English, raw English. But that's a part of being a Rogers, right? In the same way, the part of being a son of God is that we put on Christ. You don't live in this world and hold on to the things of the past when you have a new identity. Their new identity is Rogers. Therefore, they act like Rogers. They do the things that Rogers do. Rogers is... It's a weird word, but they do those things, okay? And in the same way, we too are to do this with Christ. We are to put on Christ. And this means a few things for us. The first implication of this is that our primary, our primary identity is in Christ. Our clothing tells people who we are. This is police wear uniforms, nurses wear scrubs, businessmen wear suits, and preachers wear suits and ties, right? Um, it's not that... Uh, necessarily this is a function of the job, but a lot of these other occupations, so their uniform is a function of their job, but it also signals who they are, right? If I were to come in here with um, just being a Southern Baptist church and knowing the history of how Southern Baptists expect you to suit up and everything, if I came in here with shorts, flip-flops, and a t-shirt, nobody would have walked in today and said, this guy might be the preacher. Nobody would have said that. But I did have many in my youth were like, man, why are you dressed up like that? You look weird and stuff. And I was like, I know. But what you wear signals your identity, right? What you wear signals your identity. And when we put on Christ, that is proof that our identity is in Christ. The second thing that this putting on language implies for us today is that the, the relationship that we have with Christ is close. Okay, this is a close relationship. There's nothing closer to you than your clothes. 
No matter how close you sit with your spouse or your buddy or your friend, your clothes are your closest thing. It's close. And the third thing that it implies is that we have an acceptability before God. One of the key functions that clothes perform for us is that they cover our nakedness. They cover our shame. They cover those things that we don't want people to see. Those things that we bring to the table that are gross. When we are clothed with Christ in the same way, spiritually, the things that we bring to the table that are gross, the insufficient, the failings, um, the sin that we have, they are covered. He covers us in that way as children. And this is the free grace of God. Verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul here is going to be explaining to the Galatians that the gospel of Christ erases cultural barriers. It does. Okay, The first one that they have here, Jews and Greeks. One of the strongest cultural barriers in that day is that the Jews viewed life through the lens of us and them. You're either a Jew or you're a Gentile. In this situation, you're a Jew or you are a Greek. The gospel of Christ, the sonship of Christ, erases those boundaries. Class barriers. It also erases class barriers, which is the second thing that he addresses here. Neither slave nor free. It doesn't matter how wealthy you are. It doesn't matter what class you are in. It doesn't matter how low you are. God's grace is for you. God's grace, sonship, is for you. You don't have to achieve it. You don't have to work for it. It is for you in Christ and through faith that we access it. And then also the gender barrier, neither male nor female. Now, Paul here is not getting at an early onset transgender agenda here. He's not doing that. What he's saying is that even females in this day and age are considered sons. Like I mentioned earlier, this is a sonship. This is access to inheritance. And the gospel sonship erases any barriers that stand between believers in this day. So what does this mean for us? I think it means that, one, we're united in Christ. And I think that's what Paul's getting at. You are united in Christ. The young must not look down on the old. And the old must not look down on the young. The seasoned believer must not look down on the new convert, and the new convert must not look or feel ashamed or inferior next to the seasoned convert. We are all sons in Christ. We are sons. Another thing that this means is, uh, in terms of applying this to my family, wouldn't it be weird if I stormed into my house which I'll do sometimes. My mama usually makes pound cake when I come home. It's pretty nice. Doesn't matter what time. It'll be 3 a.m. Pound cake. All right, we'll do it. Sounds good. It's amazing. But wouldn't it be weird if I stormed home, trounced through this pound cake, and just acted like I was inferior, or I'm superior to all of my inferior adopted siblings? That's not right. They, they have the same sonship that I have. doesn't matter their genealogy. They're real siblings, just like me. They're just as much a Rogers as I am a Rogers because their status has been changed. In the same way, you are just as much 
a believer, no matter your story. You are just as much a son in Christ, no matter your story, no matter your weaknesses, if you have faith in him as someone who has been a believer for 30 years, 50 years, 60 years. One and the same. The promises are true for you. The inheritance is true for you. In the life of our own church, an example, Sephan, okay, the, guy, the little guy that the pains are going to bring home. He's going to be just as much a pain as Ella, and I mean that in the, you know, in the best possible way. He's going to be just as much a pain as Ella is a pain, right? As Nate is a pain, as Seth is a pain, and Ava is a pain. Like, he is the same. As soon as his legal status has changed, he is a pain through and through. That's the glorious, one of the glorious realities of adoption. There's no working for this. God loves you. He, he bestows his love on you, his compassion on you, no matter your story. No matter how long you have ran from him, no matter what you bring to the table, God's love awaits you. And then verse 29, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Abraham, uh, I'm sorry, Paul here is connecting Jesus to the story of Abraham, showing the, Gent, uh, the Gentiles, the Greeks, the Galatians here, that Jesus is actually the fulfillment. Uh, the promise was not given to offsprings, it was given to an offspring, and that is Christ, is what he said. The second main point that I want to bring out from this text today is this, that believers receive adoption according to the timely plan of God. And then we're going to see this in chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. First of all, we're going to see what's going to be, I call the age of confinement, and then coming of age. And then we're going to see the work of the Son, and then the work of the Spirit in this text. First, let's look at verses 1 through 3. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, which can also be translated minor, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until a date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Paul's using analogy here to explain how they have come out of bondage, right? Uh, The child here in this analogy is the heir. But the child, because he has not come of age, is still under guardians, He's still under protectors. He will receive the inheritance in the father's due time, which we will see is coming in just a second in the next verse. But he's, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Paul here is trying to communicate to the Galatians that you are enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. The very things that you are seeking to add on to these Gentile believers, those were the things that actually enslaved you. These aren't good for you. You were slaves to them. You tried to earn favor with God by adhering to these elementary principles of the world, meaning the law. But you're no longer under... This guardian, as the text continues, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. To redeem those who were under the law. And this is the work of the son uh, that we're going to look at here. Um, Notice, when the fullness of time had come. Again, we are under 
guardians and managers until a date set by his father. But when the fullness of time had come, the fullness of time of this universe happened when Christ came. When Christ came and he lived the life that was perfect, he obeyed the righteous requirements of the law. He died the death and the fullness of time came when he died on the cross and he was raised. He defeated sin, death, and the devil. That is the fullness of time that we rejoice in as sons. God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions Adoption as sons. And I do want to spend a little bit of time camping out on this term, adoption. How do we define our divine adoption? Do we just see it through the lens of human adoption? Yes and no. I think it speaks very clearly to how we have been brought into the family of God. But let's do spend a little bit of time discussing how we define this. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says this. Adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. It's beautiful. This is beautiful. Adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby we we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. In what manner are we adopted? Well, adoption deals with your spiritual status. Just like familial adoption here at the earthly level deals with family status. We were transferred spiritually from the family of darkness into the family of God's son. The family of light. By nature, we are children of wrath and children of the devil. And our status is one of being alienated and condemned. But because of the sin-moving and Sin-removing and heaven-meriting work of Christ, our whole status changes so that now we are called children of God. And this happens after regeneration. In the gospel, regeneration happens when the Spirit comes and He grants faith to trust in the truth of God. This is not justification. Justification is how God looks at Christ's righteousness instead of our unrighteousness in a court of law. So when we need to be justified before God because he is a judge. We need that. He's a good judge. He, he, can, he judges sin and he has judged the sin of the believer in Christ. But adoption is how we come to God as father. So we don't deal with him as a judge in adoption. We deal with him as a father. He deals with us as a father is a better way of Putting that adoption brings us out of the courtroom of God and into the family of God from this stale, harsh courtroom scene into a loving, compassionate, embracing father. John Owen gives us five elements of adoption. I know this is a lot of information. That's why I put it up on the board, but because I think it, I think it's helpful. It's helpful for me. Five elements of adoption by John Owen. The person first belongs to another family. This is true of you. You belong to a different family. You were not born a believer. You were not. You were in the kingdom of darkness and have been transferred into the kingdom of his son. There is a family to which he has no right to belong. How interesting. Orphans. You think about orphans. okay? In rooms filled with cribs where... They've got no hope except to wait on somebody to come rescue them. They don't have a right to it. 
still. Like, it, it's a good thing that families go and do it, but the orphan still has no, there's, they're not entitled to adoption. Neither are we. We have no right that we bring to the table to belong to God's family as sons, but he gives it to us. Third, there's an authoritative legal translation from one family to another. Fourth, the adopted person is freed from all the legal obligations of the family from which he came. We see that at the human level speaks to the spiritual level. Fifthly, by virtue of his translation, he is invested with all the rights, privileges, and advantages of the new family. It's the beauty of adoption. Verse 6 here, moving on. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his sons into your hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The interesting thing about being a son of God is that you have the spirit also at work in you. Okay? Um, no matter how difficult my parents are with the kids that they have adopted, um, they can't run from that, but they can resist it. Right? They've got to buy into being a Rogers or they will rebel. You see that in teenagers sometimes. The, the, the great hope for those of us who are truly adopted into the family of God is we have the spirit within us that will never let us go and that continues to be at work in us to cry out to the Father. Okay? It's at work within us. This term cry here is an anguished and passionate cry. I hate to do this to you guys sometimes, but... It brings me great joy whenever I teach youth on Sunday mornings and I transition over to the service just to peek in and see my kid in the nursery. And I try to do so in such a way that he doesn't see me because when he does, this is what I hate to do. He screams. He cries. Why? I didn't scare him. He wants to be with me. Right? He hates the idea that I have just seen him and now he's going to leave me. I think kids just think adults just go and play all the time and leave them in pens. That's what I think. Um, but he, he wants to be with me that, and I actually just did that. So sorry in there. Uh, but it, it, it brings me joy to see him and it brings him joy to see me. And when there's separation, there's a cry. This is that same type of anguished and passionate cry that the spirit invokes within us as we cry. But he gives us a specific word, a specific title that the spirit invokes us to cry. And it's Abba. There's a lot of debate on what this word actually means. Some think it's a agonizing type of cry, this this pain, you know, a, a cry full of pain, full of need. Some think it's like a baby cooing. I don't know, it's kind of odd, but um but maybe there's a debate on that. But the interesting thing to me is why would Paul use an Aramaic word when speaking to Greeks? Right? That's the confusing thing in all of this. Not so much at what does this word actually mean in its historic setting, but why did he use Aramaic? This is actually the, the exact same term in the exact same way that Jesus addresses the Father in Mark fourteen thirty six, And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible to you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And that was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so the Spirit is in us. As believers, as sons, and causing us to cry out, Abba, Father, giving us the same access to God as Christ. 
we now get to come to God in the same way that Christ does, as his very own son, as Christ our elder brother, which we sang about earlier. Through the Spirit, we have the same access to the Father. And then verse 7, Paul concludes this brief summary on adoption. So, you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. You were a slave, but now you're a son. And since you're a son, you're an heir. It's beautiful. We will never know on this side of heaven the fullness of that, by the way. This is better than you can imagine. It is. You will never know on this side of heaven the fullness of what it means to be an heir. But the best thing that it means is that you have communion and fellowship with God again. You know him as father. So as a church, we must respond to this. If you're an unbeliever in here, this text has made it clear that you have no means or ability to come to God on your own. Just like my adopted siblings who had no ability to to contribute to their adoption, so too do you have no ability to establish a right relationship with God. That's the meaning of this text, the implication, the application of this text for an unbeliever in here. But I want to tell you, I've been in the receiving rooms in China So in this whole process, let me peel back the layers a little. In this whole process, you anticipate, you get this child assigned to you. You anticipate this child. You get pictures of this child from orphanage, maybe a little bio of this child. You get frequent pictures. You're able to send this child gifts. You're able to start building somewhat of a relationship, though you are separated. But then you go to China, which is where we went, or wherever country you're adopting from, and you go. And these workers, they bring in these children. This child that you're anticipating, they're coming up the elevator. You're in the room. They're coming up the elevator. You're hearing the doors shut. You're hearing people talk outside. You know that there is your child that you've been anticipating on the other side of the wall. And then they bring these children in. And it is the most moving scene you will ever be a part of. It's unbelievable. Anticipation met. That is how God receives you if you're an unbeliever. He has, is calling you. He desires to receive glory from your life. And as he calls you and beckons you and welcomes you, as Seth read earlier, with compassion, run to him today. And believers, we've got a particular response to this text as well. I think as we come to fully understand the theology of how God has brought us into his family, that should invoke praise and worship. But the reality for believers is that praise and worship just doesn't happen here. Praise and worship and all that we, and the all that we have when we understand who God is and how he's provided for us promotes us to action, right? We have received love from God, therefore we are to love one another. A vertical reality has a horizontal implication. We've received grace from God. Therefore, we show grace to one another, even when we're wrong, to your spouse, to your friend, to your fellow church member, to your boss, to your co-worker. We receive grace. You give grace. We receive love from God and are commanded to love one another again. In fact, to be ungracious and unforgiving and unloving would be unchristianly, right? We are image bearers, and when we come to know who God is, we're to reflect and bear his image and do the thing that God does. And so it is true with adoption. Adoption is not just theologically true of the gospel and of our status spiritually before God, but it is also a mission 
for the church. You should be involved in some way, shape, or form as a believer in orphan care. And I've got eight reasons for why. Right? And these are going to be quick. I know we've had a lot. There's eight reasons for why every believer in here should be involved in orphan care. And I say orphan care pretty generically because not everybody is called to adopt. Not everybody is called to foster. And not everybody is called to give, but you're called to do something. Okay? You may not be called to adopt, but you may be called to foster. You may not be able to call you may not be called to either of these, but you could help a family who wants to. You're called by God to participate in this mission, the adopting father. First reason is this. You've been adopted by God. We've just discovered that. We've just reflected upon that. Secondly, orphan care will sanctify, will be sanctifying for you and your family. It will be. Uh, most sanctifying thing that God has ever caused in my life or allowed to happen is for my family to adopt. I'm telling you, I was 14, 15, 16, whenever they were... <laughs> well, I was 13, 14, and then 15... Um, 15 when they adopted, but 13 and 14 when they were going through the process. I didn't know why we were bringing another kid in our family. I'm be honest. I'm like, what? I'm being honest. Okay, I, that's that's harsh, isn't it? But I was selfish. I needed, I needed my parents to lead me in such a way to show me that life is not about you, son. It don't matter. Well, here's what life life is about: going to those who cannot help themselves in serving them, even at the expense of your own good, even at the expense of your own inheritance or whatever car you might drive, okay? Even at that expense. That was the most sanctifying thing that I can point, out, point back to in my life that has ever happened. If you do that with your family, that'll happen for your children, if, if God is gracious. It is a tremendous means for sanctifying. Orphan care is missional. Who knew that when this little girl, Yami Dong, was placed in a box on the side of the street in April of 2003, that later in 2012, that she would be baptized with her sister by her older brother? Who would have known that? God did. That's the mission of adoption. You get to bring these children who who may never hear of the name of Christ proclaimed into a home, That's going to love them and shepherd them and share truth with them. Unbelievable. And we've seen the fruit of that in our very own home. Adoption meets a tangible, real need. There are 153 million orphans in the world. An orphan defined there is any child who has lost either their mother or father. Okay, So there's some sort of parental absence there. There are 17.8 million double orphans, meaning they've lost both parents in the world. 17.8 million. It's a real need in our world. Fifthly, you have the resources as a church. You have the resources to do this. You have the resources. Again, you may be called to adopt. You may not be called to adopt, but you may be called to give. You may be called to foster care. You may be called in some way to help serve, to, to reach, to come around, to encourage even. And I'm not even... I'm not even just attaching this to a pocketbook in any way, shape, or form. I mean just encouragement. I mean coming to these families who are going through the process and encouraging them and loving on them and caring for them. That is a way that you can serve in this mission. Sixthly, uh, Jesus himself was adopted by an earthly father. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus didn't have an earthly father until Joseph chose to willfully adopt him and provide for him and protect him as his earthly father. 
Our elder brother was adopted in the earthly sense, Christ. And then seventh, God is compassionate towards the disenfranchised. There are four disenfranchised types of categories of people that make their presence, that God brings to our attention all throughout the text. Foreigners, poor, widows, and orphans. Exodus 22, 21 through 27 says this, that God hears the cry of the orphan. Psalm 68, 5 says that God is a father to the fatherless and a protector of widows. Psalm 146, 9 says this, he upholds the fatherless. Surely as God's people, we should be concerned with the very things that God is concerned with. And this is just a few references of many. And then lastly here, orphan care proves pure and undefiled religion. That's how James applies it to the church. He says this in James 1.27, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Why is that? Because they have nothing to offer you back. Nothing to offer you back. You go and you love and you care for them at the expense of self for their good. There's a lot of reasons. There's a lot more reasons why I think the churches and our church in particular should be involved in orphan care. I'm encouraged though. Our church has been involved in orphan care. Like I mentioned, the pains are bringing home a new pain, right? For us to deal with, right? As a church, to care and to love, right? It's going to be awesome to have little Sifan here. The Mitzels, they've been serving as foster parents. The McCraveys are in the adoption process. The Castros are in the adoption process. And the Fryer family, they've adopted. And there's more of you who either have been adopted or may be considering it or may be in the process that I'm just unaware of. You may be fostering. You may be supporting someone financially quietly. And that is good and best. But I want to commend you and commission you, not beg you. I'm not sitting here begging you as... Someone who doesn't have an argument. I've just showed you what God has done for you. And I've showed you what God cares about. Now I'm seeking to commission you. Go do that. Get involved. Pray with your family. Get involved in the mission of adoption. The mission of orphan care. Wherever you are. For God has done that for you. Let's pray. God we do thank you for how you have cared for us so well. How you have provided for our deepest need. How you love us in spite of ourselves sometimes. A lot of times. God, we look to you for purpose, for value. God, we, wanna, we seek to bring you glory even now as we sing. To worship you as a father who went on a rescue mission for us who were vulnerable and lost. God, we thank you for your son and pray that your name would be known in Jesus' name. Amen.